from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i Faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Dorothy Hansen an 82-year-old Baha'i who had a career in television in the 50s with a TV show in California called Dottie Hansen's High Time, which was a teenage dance show. The unique thing about Dorothy's show at that time was that it was racially integrated, which at times got her into trouble, like the time she danced with an African-American on the show. She was threatened to be taken off the air. Her show ultimately won an Emmy, After becoming a Baha'i, Dorothy traveled to more than 50 countries. I started the interview by asking Dorothy where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in a dusty little town of Mineral Wells, Texas. My ancestors had been pioneers. They actually broke the land and settled the county in about 1857. The town was 6,000. And I went to the nearest church, which is the Church of Christ. I was very active in Girl Scouts, and I hiked the Texas hills and and was very happy as a child, although my father died when I was eight. And my mother took me to the first Christian church, which was uh, her church. And I remember as a little child sitting in Sunday school and getting little cards with pictures of Jesus teaching. And every Sunday we would memorize a verse. But then my mother remarried and left that little town, so I stayed with my grandparents. Why didn't you go with your mom? Well, I didn't want to. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to stay with my grandparents. And how old were you? Eight. Wow, that's unusual to to make a choice like that. Well, I did make that choice Mm -hmm. (laughs) and stayed where I had been most of my life. But because my grandparents did not go to church, I went alone then, but not all the way downtown to the First Christian Church. I went to the Church of Christ, which was about three or four blocks from my house. And you know, all those years, I never understood why my grandparents never went to church. And about five years ago, someone was looking through the archives of a country church called the Indian Creek Baptist Church, where my grandparents had been members when they were first married out on the Brazos River. And it turns out that they were thrown out of the church for fiddling and dancing. My grandfather was a musician, and his four brothers were musicians, and they played for all the big weddings and pioneer activities. And so they just continued to fiddle even after they joined the church, but that wasn't allowed. And so they never went back to church. But I didn't know that at the time, but they were very good people, and they lived a very good Christian life, and I went to the Church of Christ until I was 16. 
And by then I realized that I was being taught that everybody else would go to hell except the people who went to my church, the Church of Christ, on North Oak Avenue in Mineral Wells, Texas. You mean everybody was, Everybody else was going to hell except for that little congregation? Yes, and I really think they probably included the people who went to the South Oak Church of Christ. <laughs> it was pretty exclusive. And, and I always thought, well, wait a minute, what about all those good American Indians? And what about all those good Catholics and all those good Buddhists? And, well, I was sure there were other people in the world I didn't know about who had perfectly legitimate religions. And so when I went to college at 16, every Sunday I'd go to a different church. And I found something really wonderful that I liked in every church I went to. The Methodists were very interested in social action, and I liked that a lot. The Quakers had a very wonderful meditative Sunday, and I really liked the Catholics. I liked the quality of faith in the Catholic Church, and I still do. I was so impressed by the Pope who has just... I watched him on television on his first visit to America, and I was so impressed by the kindness and intellect of the man. But I wasn't able to accept some of the dogma. So, as I went through college, I became very interested in literature. And once I was reading Thomas Mann, The Magic Mountain, where he said, the faith of man in the 20th century will define itself in political terms. So I thought, oh, well, let me explore that. (laughs) So I came out to UCLA and began to explore political action. It does seem that all roads do eventually lead us to where God wants us to be. Mm. I studied literature and I studied acting, and this was during World War II. And to Mineral Wells, Texas, a town of 6,000, came 20,000 soldiers to train at Camp Walters. And every girl in Mineral Wells got married, including me. I married a young man named Woodrow Hansen, whose uh, roots had been in Minnesota, but his family lived in California, and he, he graduated at Berkeley and was getting his master's degree. When No, I guess he had his master's degree when he went into the Army. And so I got married, and, and we got married, and he went overseas. So I decided to come out to UCLA, where his family was, and I was very interested in drama and, as I say, politics. Uh, I found politically active groups, and and I also found that in California there were integrated groups, which I had not seen in Texas. Although, as a girl, I used to ride my bicycle down across the railroad tracks, and I wondered why the Negro people at that time had only an old shack for a high school, and we had a great big brick building. That didn't seem right at all. I had always been interested in justice. And as you know, the Army was also segregated at that time. But I was very interested in in jazz music, and so I would go hear the Army bands play back in Mineral Wells. There was a black band and a white band, and I couldn't understand why they didn't play together. But out in California, for the first time, I began to know black people as fellow students, at uh, UCLA and in the political action groups I'd joined. 
You know, it's funny that I can't remember what the issues were that we were really involved with during World War II, because everybody then was very patriotic, and we all supported the war. But I do remember when my husband came back, he decided to get a Ph.D. at the New School for Social Research in uh, New York City. So we went back to New York City, and there I became pregnant. So my husband left school and got a job teaching in a one of the post-war colleges in New York State. It was called Champlain College up on Lake Champlain. And there, for the first time, I was 21 now, so I was going to be able to vote. And Henry Wallace was running. And so for the first time in my life, I went out and campaigned because I thought maybe I could find justice in politics. And I was, uh, Henry Wallace was a, a Democrat, and I was campaigning in the most Republican county, I think, in the whole United States, up around Lake Champlain. I can't remember the name of it. And, of course, my candidate did not win. And then my husband went back to Providence, Rhode Island, to get his, finish his Ph.D. at Brown. And there I started a career in radio and in television. Television was just coming in. And because I'd been in radio before doing dramatic programs, I was the first woman in Providence, Rhode Island, I believe, on station KJAR, I think. The Providence Journal had a a radio station. And we were experimenting with this new medium television. So, Dorothy, yes. how, did, how did you get into radio in the first place? Well, in college back in Texas, I had been very interested in drama, and I always, uh, I would be in dramatic plays. Oh, I used to give readings at, <laughs> at pit shows that came to Mineral Wells. Of course, there was no live entertainment in Mineral Wells, but when tent shows came, they always had talent contests. They were traveling uh, groups of thespians who who gave melodramas in small towns across Texas in tents. They would pitch a tent on a vacant lot, and, and everybody would go, and I would be there every night because I was so curious about everything that came from outside Mineral Wells, Texas. <laughs> then in college, I was in the drama department and the art department, and when we lived in, in Providence, Rhode Island, someone asked me, if I'd like a radio show, and I said, sure. So I did a little radio show, and I did a uh, joined a summer stock company. And then when we went to the big city of Providence, Rhode Island, I decided I wanted to go down and get a radio job. So I went down, and it just turned out that the production manager and director had been a soldier there in Mineral Wells, Texas, in Camp Walters. Unbelievable. And he, and he said... Are you the gal from Texas? And I said, that's me. And he, he said, well, when I was there, there was a high school. I lived across from the high school, and there was a high school band that used to wake me up at 6 o'clock every morning, marching, playing. And I said, oh, yes, I was there playing the cymbals at that time <laughs> in the high school band. So anyway, he gave me an audition, and I read with a professional actor. And he said, okay, you're hired. And so I worked in for a couple of years. That's how I got into radio. And then by the time television came, I was already working in the studio, and everybody knew me, and they said, you want to try out for television? So I did. So tell me about the shows you did, both on radio and TV. 
Well, I had a show called Front and Center, which was a show, and I was the mistress of ceremonies. Well, let's let's get out to San Francisco first. I came out to UCLA, but then when my husband came back from the war, after he got his Ph.D., he came out to work and teach at San Francisco State. And so I decided to go down and get a a job in television. And uh, there wasn't much in San Francisco for talent, so I decided, well, if I'm ever going to get on television, I'll have to develop my own show. So I went home and drew a storyboard and took it down to the Coca-Cola company. And I remember standing in the in the plant at the Coca-Cola company and selling that show, which was called Dottie Hansen's High Time. Then I went took it down to Channel 7, and we put it on the air. And I, produ- I wrote it and produced it, and I was the talent on the show. It was a teenage uh, dance show, sort of like Dick Clark, except that we had a little uh, cafe with a cable car bar and, Coca-Cola, and well, the critics used to say I mixed a little uplift with my downbeat <laughs> because I had the first integrated show in San Francisco. I was by then very involved in civil rights. I remember I did Louis Armstrong on the show once, and the switchboard lighted up like a Christmas tree. And the director of the station said that I couldn't dance with pops on my show, and I said, "Then I'll just take my show to another station." There was a man called Sid Culler down in Los Angeles who had, oh, he had a big show with uh, Duke Ellington called Jump for Joy, and I had met him in show business in San Francisco. So I flew down and and said, what shall I do? They don't want me to dance with Pops anymore, and I'm going to have to take my show off the air. And he said, no, no, don't do that. Then you'll be like the Hollywood 10. You won't have any uh, medium to say what you want to say. And I was not only integrating my show, but I was also every week having a foreign student from a different country. He said, why don't you just take it easy, go slow, just have a couple of, of black kids on dancing and and little by little integrate it. And so I listened to him and I did that. And the show became very popular. I won an Emmy. And then I also won a McCall's Golden Mike Award for that show. And I continued on in television for several years until my husband got a Fulbright scholarship to go to Germany. So I went with him to Germany. Now, by then, I had four children, and the youngest was a baby. So we we moved to Hamburg, Germany. And while there, I was still interested in civil rights, but I was also interested in the art. I learned enough German to do a television program on the... German network, and fortunately, I went down to ask for a job, and they and told them what I proposed for a show, and they bought it. <laughs> what did you and propose? It was a similar show to the teenage show I had in San Francisco, Dottie Hansen's High Time. As a matter of fact, it was called The Sugas by Dottie Hansen, which simply means The Guest of Dottie Hansen. And we would have teenagers on, and we did have dancing, but we had a we had a little more. Uh, highbrow show there, like we had the Vienna Boys Choir and and young sailors from the Hamburg School for uh, Young Sailors, I guess. They sang sea chanties. And I would have sons of prominent writers and musicians and classical musicians. It was uh, a little more highbrow, but it was the same idea. The idea was teenagers getting to know other teenagers from all over the world, 
and getting to know people of different races and backgrounds. Because already I just innately believed in one world, you know? I thought, like, I was in Mineral Wells, Texas. I used to ride my bicycle down into the black section of town. I saw that they lived just like, just like all the rest of the people in town who were poor, and my grandparents were poor. They had a big black wash pot out back, and the houses looked similar. And I thought, why are we divided by this railroad track? Just as I told you, I, I couldn't understand why we had different schools. It just seemed unjust. So I really wanted to do something on television because I knew it was an important medium that would, would be more important than just dancing and entertaining. Teenagers used to ride in and form high-time clubs. I went to some of the leaders of youth groups, and in order to form a high-time club, it couldn't be just a fan club because I didn't think that would do anything except <laughs> for anything except my ego. So in order for them to have a Dottie Henson high-time club, they had to find a community project. And the kids in San Francisco, this was back in the mid-50s, would, oh, they would teach blind children to to skate, or they'd make name tags for kids at the at the state fair, and, and they had to come up with a really useful purpose to get together and drink Cokes and dance and watch my show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coca-Cola was a very good company. They sponsored everything I proposed, and they would send Cokes out to the high-time clubs when they had parties, and we had movie stars come up and visit their parties, and because I had to have a guest celebrity every week on my show. But the one in Germany, you say, uh, you ask about was uh, we didn't do all that kind of jazz. We just had dancing and interviews. I interviewed young writers and actors and musicians. I thoroughly enjoyed that. But then when we came back to the United States, there I had four children, and my husband, after he got his Ph.D. and and had the Fulbright and all, decided that he would like to take off with a gal 20 years younger. Oh, my God. <laughs> which is too unusual in this society. And I thought the world had come to an end. Sure. It turned out it was the best thing that ever happened to me, because after the divorce, then I went back and finished college. I'd only been to, had two years of college in Texas when I got married and started moving about. Yeah, and you had started college quite early. Uh, at 16, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. isn't that, was that early? a year early. I guess they, I got, in those days, they used to skip kids forward in school if you were, you know, able to do it, do the work. And I remember I skipped one year in school. So I was a year younger than most of the kids who graduated the year I did. And I remember leaving on a Greyhound bus the very next morning after graduating from high school because, um, I, I by then did not want to live in a segregated town, and I wanted to get away from all that bigotry. One can be just as much of a bigot if you're bigot if you're prejudiced against the bigots. <laughs> when I became a Baha'i, I realized that that was a prejudice too. So I started. Well, now I can go back to my hometown and love everybody there, no matter what their problems are with prejudice. I figure that it's just the difference in, in social development, and someday when they, when they understand more and get to know 
African Americans better, they won't be prejudiced. I mean, isn't that how we eliminate our prejudice? We get to know the other person? Mm-hmm. It certainly stems re- from ignorance. Yeah. I remember one of the most effective, when I, well, when I came out to San Francisco then, uh, I was very active in the civil rights movement, which was, oh, I used to work with the Black Panthers when we lived in San Francisco while I was doing my television show. I learned so many things. You know, prejudice gets so deep into our our culture, you don't realize things. And I am so certain that prejudice gets embedded in our language. And one of the ways we get rid of it is by pulling out all those roots of racism that are in the language. You know, we have black books and angels are white. You blackball people. There's just so many little little clues in our language. And when I began to work in San Francisco with the Black Panthers... I learned about all those things that I hadn't even thought about before. I, I quit my job. By then I was teaching here in the Napa Valley in an all-white school after, after my husband left. But then I decided to quit my job here and go teach in a ghetto school in San Francisco. And I took my children and went to the city and taught there. And that's where I learned about all the coded language that African Americans have always used to talk to one another in a way that white people couldn't understand, you know. It's in the Negro spirituals, like swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Well, that was coded language for Harriet Tubman was going to the... The Underground Railroad, the under, right. Underground Railroad to take people north. So they wanted them to swing low, sweet chariot. And another one was the ship they came on was called Jesus, some of them. And then the, the old hymns about Jesus carrying me home were also related to the ship that had they'd come in and took them back. And, and then there's the old spiritual about, oh, I just come from the fountain, Lord, I just come from the fountain. Because during the Civil War, the old men who could no longer work in the fields would hang around the fountains in the South, and, and people would say, oh, they're just lazy but they were very alert, and they were listening to the news that came in at the telegraph station, which they, of course, couldn't they couldn't read or write because it was prohibited. They would listen to the news and then put it into code and go out and sing it in the field so that people would know what was happening in the world. And you know, it's still true. Now that I became a Baha'i, I've traveled to 53 countries. And when I was Af- in Africa... Oh, really? 53 countries? Yes, because, well, let me tell you how I became a Baha'i, and then I'll tell you about my later experiences in Africa. In San Francisco, I also taught. And one day I got a telephone call from Washington, D.C., saying, will you go to Pongo Pongo, American Samoa, as a television? Because, of course, I had a background in teaching and television by then. And I said, yes, where is it? Dorothy, did you know who this person was that called you? Well, it was somebody from the American Association of Educational Broadcasters. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't know who that was. I don't know, maybe because I'd won an Emmy in television and, you know, they were recruiting people to go to Samoa to teach English as a second language on television. At that time, black people were in the 60s now. We're in the 60s in San Francisco, which was a hotbed of 
of civil rights activities. There were the Black Panthers, and well, you know, you probably remember all the things that were happening back then. Black people were taking their children out of public schools because there was so much prejudice there among the teachers and in the curriculum and putting them into private storefront schools. And about a 100 white teachers went down to volunteer to teach, but the black people would only accept two of us, myself and another young woman. And I was getting ready to do that when I got this call. But I don't know why I said yes. I told my children... By then, there were my two oldest ones were away, but I told my youngest two that I had to go. And my, I guess he was a 16-year-old boy, didn't want to go to Samoa. So I said, well, I know I have to go. I don't know why, but I know I have to go. And so he decided to go home and live with his father, and he went to a private school back in Boston. And I took my youngest boy, who was nine, and we went off to... Pongo Pongo, American Samoa, where I worked as a television teacher. And, you know, I discovered that if there's prejudice in a culture, people take that prejudice with them all over the world, wherever they go. And I wanted to get away from it, but I found among my colleagues there was a lot of prejudice, this time against Samoans. And so I began to criticize the system that permitted that in the television system. And I spent a lot of time with the Samoan people. One day, I remember I was in a market, and and a nice old Samoan person asked me, what is your religion? Because the Samoan people are very religious. Most indigenous people all around the world are very religious. And I think deep inside of me, I always was, but I didn't really know it. And I thought, and I said, well, I guess I'm a humanitarian. And they said, what's that? And I wasn't really sure. So, Dorothy, you had basically stopped going to church after you left? After college. After college. Yeah, when I began to get interested in politics as a possible means for finding justice in the world. I see. I remember on the way to Samoa, on the plane, I was reading Che Guevara's diary, and As I read it, I realized that he himself had violated his own first principles of revolution in Bolivia because the Bolivian people were never with him. And his first principle was that the people must be with you for a revolution, and yet he stayed. And so that hypocrisy was no different from the hypocrisy I had discovered in some Christian churches. Then I I decided to give up on politics after that. Uh, So here I was in Samoa, teaching English as a second language, and I had no religion, and I had no politics either by then. So I figured, I guess I must be a humanitarian. Well, one day I saw a black person, uh, American, African-American, walking down the street in Pongo Pongo, and that was most unusual, so I asked another liberal teacher whom I knew, what's that man doing here? And she said, Oh, he's with some group called Baha'i. And I said, what's that? And she said, oh, it's a group that believes in love. She said, I've just been to one of their meetings, and they're just wonderful people. And I said, well, can you get me an invitation? I'd like to go to one of those meetings. And she said, well, the next time I'll let you know. So then I became ill. I was in the hospital. 
some tropical infection. I'm not quite sure. I can't remember now. But she came to me in the hospital and said, oh, you know, those Baha'i people are going to have a, a meeting in the Sadie Thompson room of the Intercontinental Hotel next week. And if you're well, you can go with us. And she gave me a Baha'i book. It was called Baha'u'llah and the New Era. I thought, well, these are good ideas. These things I believed all my life, that we're all one human family and we should be prejudiced against one another. And so let me go see what this... I determined I was going to be well enough to go to the Baha'i meeting. So I... I was, and I went to the Baha'i meeting, and at the door, there was a Persian gentleman who who said, oh, you look so familiar. Have we met before? And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm sure that we could not have met before. So I went into the the lecture, and there was a professor of uh, radioisotope theory, I think, from the University of Wisconsin, who had been a... He was an, Austra- an Indian from Australia, and uh, he had come to the United States and was teaching at the University of Wisconsin and en route to his home in Australia to visit. The Persian man who met me at the door was a friend. That's why he stopped there. So I listened to him, and he talked about something called progressive revelation, which I had never heard of. And I listened intently because... He said that I had always thought that science and religion must have some connection because if there's a God, they're both from God, but I didn't know what it was, and I kept looking for that as well, some connection. But this professor said, just as everything in the world physically evolves, our spirits also evolve. And I thought, well, that's logical. And he spoke about how there were ancient religions, all trace of which has been forgotten. Uh, well, first of all, he proclaimed that there was one God, and I was, I was comfortable accepting that, although I wasn't quite sure what God was. I knew it wasn't a man up in the sky, but he had a wonderful explanation for it. He said, God is an unknowable essence, a creator of the universe, who is so much beyond us that we could no more understand what God is than a table could understand the carpenter who built it. That made sense. So he talked about the religion of God in the time of Moses being called Judaism. And that was a tribal time in the history of the world. And as we move forward, when Jesus came, the religion of God began to be called Christianity. And at that time, city-states began to develop. So I could see that in the material world and the spiritual world, development was going on, because I remembered from all my Sunday school days how Jesus said, I have many things to tell you, but you're not ready yet. And when you're ready, I'll come again. And he also said, when he, the Spirit of Truth, has come, he will explain to you all of these things that I haven't explained. And I knew that Jesus, because he was from God, had the capacity and the right to change the law of Moses. Like when he went out and picked wheat on on the Sabbath, you know, and people accused him of breaking the law of Moses. And he said, no, I've come to fulfill it. So I saw that Jesus had made change according to the evolution of the people. 
And then, after that, he said that God sent a messenger named Mohammed. Of course, I hadn't heard about Mohammed, but I didn't know very much about Islam. But then he explained how each messenger of God confirms those who've come before. And of course, to be a Muslim, you have to accept Jesus as the spirit of truth. And Mohammed then carried the world a little further, and in that time, city-states began to develop. He brought teachings that uh, changed the Arabic people who were wandering in the desert to more, a more civilized group. Universities developed. The Arabic system of numbers developed. And I could see that every time a messenger of God came, there was new light released into the world, new knowledge and understanding. And, of course, the Renaissance developed after Mohammed. And now, in this age, God has sent a new messenger, he said, and his name is Baha'u'llah, which means the glory of God. And Baha'u'llah has come to take mankind a step further, whereas in the time of Solomon under Judas, you could have a thousand wives. Now we only have one. (laughs) Under Islam, I believe people could have four if they treated them equally. But in, and now Baha'u'llah had come, and equality of women, and men and women, became an important part of his teaching. And he taught that we're all one family, and that we should live in love and harmony with people of all religions, because we're, we're from the same God, and the same God has sent all the messengers. And it just made sense to me. It was like a little piece in the, a crossword puzzle that fell into place, and I could, because I, I always ask myself, why are there so many different religions if there's just one God? And progressive revelation, this idea, explained it to me. And Baha'u'llah, I read, had written that this is not the last messenger God will send. In another thousand years, uh, God will send another messenger to to guide us according to the necessities of that age, because the human spirit and the human mind, as well as human science and, and technology, are all evolving. And because the major theme of Baha'u'llah was the unity of mankind, I was just amazed to connect the idea that in former times we couldn't have been, the world couldn't have been united we didn't have things like television, which, which I had become familiar with, which could show me pictures of people all over the world. And now we have Internet and we have uh, all of the technology that makes it possible to unite the world. Now we just have to learn how to use it. So I went, after the lecture was over, I was a Baha'i hmm. because this gentleman, this professor, had said, well, to be a Baha'i, all you have to do is accept that Baha'u'llah is a messenger of God and try to follow his teachings, which then he began, he outlined, like the harmony of science and religion and equality of men and women and the unity of mankind. So I went up to the Persian who was at the door, who I knew was a Baha'i, and said, I believe this, may I join you? And he said, well, yes, of course, you. we have books at our house if you would like to come and read more about Baha'u'llah. So the next day, after my day at the television studio, I went to his house and started reading a little book 
that I learned Baha'u'llah had written in Baghdad as he walked along the river in Baghdad as an exile from his... Uh, he was exiled from Tehran because they considered him a heretic. And the little book I picked up that day was called The Hidden Words of Baha'u'llah. And what he had done in that little book was to take the essence of all the holy books of the past and put it into the form of verse. As a poet, I certainly appreciate that, because, you know, poetry is the most condensed form of language. Well, would it be all right if I read the first paragraph of this little book so Absolutely. you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. Okay. It says, He is the glory of glories. This is that which has descended from the realm of glory, uttered by the tongue of power and might, and revealed unto the prophets of old. We have taken the inner essence thereof, and clothed it in the garment of brevity as a token of grace unto the righteous, that they may stand faithful unto the covenant of God, stay faithful in their lives, fulfill in their lives his trust, and in the realm of spirit obtain the gem of divine virtue. And I thought, well, what a wonderful thing to do, to, to put in poetic form, and it was written in Arabic and in Persian, half in Persian and half in Arabic, which, of course, I could only see the translation, but I recognized the beauty of the language and how he had condensed it. As I began to read this little book, the, the second one of these little hidden words, little short writings, was about justice, which I had been concerned with all my life. And let me just tell you what Baha'u'llah said about justice. Sure. O Son of Spirit, the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. And you know, I always thought of, that justice was the best beloved too, because without justice, you can't have any kind of equality, or how can a civilization progress without justice? Anyway, this is what I memorized. The best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. Turn not away therefrom, if thou desirest me, and neglect it not that I may confide in thee. By its aid thou shalt see with thine own eyes, and not through the eyes of others, and shalt know of thine own knowledge, and not through the knowledge of thy neighbor. Ponder this in thy heart, how it behoveth thee to be. Verily, justice is my gift to thee, and the sign of my loving kindness. Set it then before thine eyes. So I thought, well, this person certainly certainly does understand about justice, because how can you have justice if people aren't educated to know what their rights are, and how could, how could a society be a just society if we didn't allow black people to be educated? And then I learned that Baha'u'llah had written that universal education is the law of God in this age. And one very interesting thing is that if man has a son and a daughter, which one do you think he should educate first? As you think about it, most people, as they think uh, uh, from times past, it was always the boy who was educated first. Mm -hmm. But Baha'u'llah said it should be the girl who gets educated first, and why would that be? Well, as you think about it, she's going to be the first educator of the next generation, isn't she? Mm -hmm. And so... It made so much sense to me that I immediately became a Baha'i. Mm. 
a couple of weeks later, another Persian man, he was a, this one was a doctor, came through because, you know, Baha'is travel all over the world teaching the Baha'i faith to those who are interested. We don't proselytize, for instance. We never say, your religion is wrong and ours is right. But we say, here's a banquet. If hungry, help yourself. And the banquet, of course, the fruit of a prophet are his teachings, his words. And so we offer the words to people all over the world. Well, this man came by and he said, well, what are you going to do with Oh, I invited me to have Persian food with him, and I'd never had Persian food before. So I said, well, I'm going back to San Francisco and teach in the black ghetto. And he said, you should go to Guatemala, Yucatan, or Bolivia as a Baha'i pioneer. And I said, what is that? And he said, well, it's anyone who leaves their country for the purpose of teaching the faith of Baha'u'llah in this age. A little light switched on, and I knew that was what I would do for the rest of my life. So a couple of weeks later, I left for Bolivia. <laughs> and when I got there, I was, I was amused at the fact that before I heard about Baha'u'llah and the Baha'i faith, I thought about going to Bolivia as a, as a revolutionary with Sheikh Rivera. <laughs> but there I was in Bolivia, teaching these wonderful ideas about the unity of mankind. And Baha'is don't participate in partisan politics. We vote as citizens, but we don't join parties because our whole purpose is to unite everybody. And if if one belongs to one party and one belongs to the other, we're not united. And I remember traveling way down in the jungles of Bolivia to a little village, and there was some kind of big political gathering going on, a lot of hoopla. And when I arrived at this village, I was so thirsty. And the lady came out on the path to meet me and said, wouldn't you? And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have something cool to drink? Well, of course, there was no ice in that Amazon village. But she said, would you like to come in and have something cool to drink? And I said, well, thank you, yes. And she brought me cold grapefruit juice. They took the wild grapefruits that grow down there and put them in a mountain stream that came down from the Andes and cooled them. And so she brought me this nice glass of cool grapefruit juice. And then she said to me, have you brought us a message from God? Wow. And I said, yes. I don't know how indigenous people know, but they always know. And so I told her about the Baha'i faith. And as I was teaching, one of the hefis, that means chief, of this big political rally came marching up the street because everybody knows when someone new arrives in a little indigenous village. And he came into her house and he said, what's going on here? What are you teaching her? And I told him the things that I've told you that I heard from this professor in Pongo Pongo, America, Samoa, a progressive revelation and unity of mankind and justice for all. He said, that's wonderful. That's what our people need. And he went off to his political rally. And then I thought, my goodness, this is the most revolutionary thing I've ever been into. And nobody bothers you, <laughs> you know? At yeah. least nobody in South America usually bothers you if you're teaching these ideas. So, Dorothy, I have a question. Yes. What language were you communicating with them? Uh, Spanish. Okay, so you knew Spanish. Yes, I had learned Spanish along the way. I, uh, I forgot to tell you about going to Mexico in the summers 
Mm-hmm. When my ch- after my divorce, when the children were with their father, I would go to Mexico and study Spanish and Indian people. So I was four years in Bolivia, and then I came home so my son could graduate from high school here in Napa and go to the University of California. And then he did go and become a mining engineer and went back to South America. He married a Persian girl and had four children born in South America in Venezuela. And he uh, decided to devote his life to being a Baha'i pioneer as well. And now I have a granddaughter who's in El Salvador teaching in a nursery and she's gone as a Baha'i pioneer. Mm. And I've been traveling all these years. I went. I was in Africa three times as a Baha'i pioneer. And, oh, I had a wonderful visit in Poland for a year as a Baha'i pioneer, 91 and 92. Then I was in Venezuela four years. I came home in, in 2002 because I'm getting real old now. I'm 82, and I can't <laughs> climb over the Andes anymore. <laughs> now, Baha'i pioneers have to be self-supporting. So how yes. did you support yourself in Bolivia? How did you support yourself well, in Poland? How did you support yourself okay. in Africa? Okay, I got a job teaching school in Bolivia. And then when I retired from teaching in the United States, then I had a teacher's retirement, mm. which I could live on in Poland and in, oh, well, in Africa. I worked my way across West Africa giving poetry readings. Because I hadn't retired, I took a sabbatical year and went to Africa the first time. And by then I had started writing poetry. And Africans love poetry. I could go to a town like Lagos or Ibadan, and in two days, 2,000 people would come to listen to poetry. It was just amazing. And through my poetry, I could teach the ideas that I uh, believe in. Mm -hmm. Would you like to hear a poem? Yes, I do. A little one? Sure. Okay. This one is called A Place for Me. Why can't I find a place for me in a structured society? Sometimes I dine with the world's elite on cool verandas, servant served, but I'm not sure my place is there. And then I sleep in humble homes of bamboo, earth, and grass, eat on floor from bowl of clay, the simplest food, most simply made but I'm not sure my place is here. One must travel far to find where spirit builds with love. Wherever hearts are open wide, I'll step inside. And when I would read my poems across West Africa, I would always mention that I was a Baha'i because people would say, why are you here? And I would say I was a Baha'i pioneer. And after poetry readings on television and radio, when it was over, I would go outside and there would be dozens of people, literally dozens of people, who had come to the studio because they wanted to hear about the Baha'i faith. People were just hungry to hear about ideas of justice and unity and equality and to hear that God has sent a new messenger named Baha'u'llah. They wanted to know about it. And sometimes... Like in South America, down on the Amazon, I went on a teaching trip, and a man came and said, I dreamed last night that you were coming. What's the message you've brought for me? Mm. And, of course, we tell them the message is that God has sent a new messenger who's named Baha'u'llah, and these are his teachings. And he said, yes, yes, I'm a Baha'i. And that's the way people all over the world 
were becoming Baha'is in those days and still are. I went to Spain just this last summer, and I met wonderful people all over Spain, their Baha'i communities, and, and that was wonderful. I have to teach in a little different way. I can't go traipsing around the world as much. So I guess as long as I can move, that's what I'll be doing with my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you doing right now? I've been chosen as Poet Laureate of the Napa Valley, and I've been serving for six years. And today I went down to a meeting at the Art Council to uh, help choose the new Poet Laureate, whom we will soon be happy to have. And I'm so happy to tell you that he's a man of Portuguese descent who sometimes writes in Spanish, which is great for our valley here in California. Mm. Then we had a Baha'i meeting this afternoon, to elect our new local spiritual assembly, because I may sound disorganized, but the Baha'i faith is an organized religion. We're not disorganized, but we have an administration where we elect nine people, and this is a wonderful way of election that Baha'u'llah has given us. I wish our country had it, because each person goes, and we pray, and then we search our own conscience to find the people who are our most loyal, most spiritual, most mature, who have mature experience and developed character, and then with no campaigning and no nominations, each person writes down nine names, and the nine people who get the most votes become the local spiritual assembly of that village or town. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the whole world could have, now we're in the middle of election, we could have our election that way? I think it would be great. So that's what I did today. We elected our local spiritual assembly in the Napa Valley. Well, Dorothy, thank you so much for telling your story. You know, I wish somebody had told me a long time earlier about the Baha'i faith that I could have given my whole life to Baha'u'llah. But as it was, I searched around, rummaged around in all kinds of religions and politics for so many years. I think I was 42 before I became a Baha'i. So if anybody's out there looking for the solution to all these problems in the world, something to really unite the world and bring us together, call whatever number Warren is going to give you, and, <laughs> and you'll hear some new and wonderful ideas. And nobody will ever push you to believe them. But they're there, we offer them, and if you like them, we'll come join us. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. Okay. Thank you, Dorothy. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to talk with you. Oh, let me, do I have time for one short story? Sure do. Hope I haven't talked your ear off. But there was a pioneer who went to Africa once, and he went out to a little school where there was supposed to be a Baha'i meeting, and only one man came. He was an old farmer. And this pioneer, they waited about an hour, and finally the pioneer asked the old man, well, what do you think we should do? And does it look like anybody else is coming? And the old man said, well, I don't know much about these things. I'm just an old farmer, but if I take my feed out into the field to feed my cows, and just one of them comes, well, I'm feeding. <laughs> so the young man said, oh, well, of course. And so then he started talking to this old farmer about the Baha'i faith, and he talked and talked for about an hour, and, and there wasn't much reaction. And finally he stopped and said, well, um, what do you think about these ideas? And he said, well, 
I'm just an old farmer. I don't know much about these things, but if I took all my feed out to feed all my cattle and just one of them came, I don't believe I'd give them the whole batch. (laughs) 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 I hope I haven't given you too many words today. (laughs) No, that's fine. I think it's been fine. That's that's a great story. (laughs) It's funny how the the indigenous people are so in tune with spiritual reality. Oh, yes. Well, they don't have anything else to depend on but God. And so they really are intimate with God. I never felt so close to God as when I was wandering across the plains of Bolivia in the Altiplano. It's wonderful. And you learn so much. You know, a lot of Americans go all over the world with the Peace Corps and various things. But we learn. Anyone who's been in an indigenous environment knows that we learn a lot more than we teach. So thanks so, again, Dorothy. I'll be here in Napa writing poetry and until I get <laughs> enough energy to go somewhere else, I guess. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dorothy Hansen, an 82-year-old Baha'i who had a career in television in the 50s with a TV show in California called Dottie Hansen's High Time, which was a teenage dance show that broke the racial barrier and won an Emmy. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.